0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu/slash Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. My name is Sofiane Boirouge from the Department of Mathematics at NYU Abu Dhabi, and I am so pleased to be with you tonight to introduce our guest speaker, Francesco Calogero. Calogero is a professor emeritus of theoretical physics at University of Roma in Italy. He wrote over 400 scientific papers and four books on theoretical and mathematical physics, mainly on interglobal systems. He has also published articles on topics related to science and society, mainly on arms control and disarmament. Kalogiro served as Secretary General of the Pugwash Conferences on Science and World Affairs between 1989 and 1997. In that capacity, he accepted in 1995 the Nobel Prize awarded to Pugwash and Joseph Rotblat for their efforts to diminish the parts played by nuclear arms in international politics and in the longer run to eliminate such arms. Here, I am quoting the Nobel Foundation. Tonight, Professor Collegero will give us a talk on a world free of nuclear weapons, desirable, feasible. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming our speaker, Francesco Collegero. (coughs)
1: good evening and uh, I will go immediately into the talk I, of course I'm very glad to be here and I want to thank the university your provost who is here uh, for inviting me and uh, I gave two days ago a scientific talk at the math department and I'm very glad to have a chance to talk to a more general audience on it general topic. So this is the uh, synopsis of what I will be talking about. Uh, I suppose you read it already, so I immediately go into the matter. And so the first topic I will cover very briefly is the special character of nuclear weaponry, why they're really different. And I just give three indicators. The first is that the yield of uh, nuclear Bombs. I mean, the so-called A-bombs, and especially thermonuclear weapons, the H-bomb, the explosions are many orders of magnitudes larger than that of conventional explosions. For instance, the largest thermonuclear test explosion, which was detonated on October 30, 1961 in the high, high atmosphere by the Soviet Union, released in a fraction of a second an energy well over 50 megatons And this means more than the energy released by the explosion of 50 million tons, so 50 billion kilograms of conventional explosives, such as TNT. Perhaps more significant, this was more than 10 times larger than the estimated total of all previous explosions in war throughout history, including the two world wars with all their carpet bombings, London, Hamburg, Dresden, Tokyo, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. So you see, it's really an an enormous change, what uh, scientists say, order of magnitude, many order of magnitude. The second indicator of the particularity specialty of nuclear weapons is the fact that they have never used in war after they used to obliterate Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 6 and 9 August 1945. Not even when nuclear weapon countries, countries with nuclear weapons, were defeated by a non nuclear weapon opponent, as the United States in Vietnam and Russia in Afghanistan. And the third indicator of a great difference is that all countries of the world except a few, and the few are the United States, United Kingdom, Russia, France, China, India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. All the other countries of the world have voluntarily renounced the acquisition of nuclear weaponry by becoming non-nuclear weapon parties to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and many of these countries also enough to cover more than half of the Earth, including the entire southern hemisphere, becoming party to a nuclear weapon-free zone. And this includes many countries having the technological capability to manufacture nuclear weapons. So these are the three indicators of the great change. Then, second topic, desirability and feasibility of the transition to a nuclear weapon-free world. The desirability is far from obvious. In a world of nation states in which only very few of them possess nuclear weapons, it seems clear that it is preferable for them to keep these capabilities. In a world in which some states have a pariah connotation, possibly for very good reasons, for instance, because of a dismal human rights record, their rulers might feel that the possession of a nuclear weapon capability provides an essential insurance against in- external interventions. A country that faces an enemy having a superior conventional forces may feel that the possession of a nuclear capability is an equalizer, a country encircled by several hostile neighbors that that challenge its very right to exist may feel that the possession of a nuclear weapon capability is the ultimate guarantor of survival. And some thinkers argue that the existence of nuclear weapons by making war exceedingly destructive provides an indispensable ingredient to avoid major wars Hence, it is a a guarantor of peace. On the other hand, it is obvious that the spread of nuclear weaponry to many countries and possibly even to subnational terrorist groups entails, sooner or later, their actual use with devastating consequences for our civilization, possibly even the disappearance of Homo sapiens. And it is indeed well known from, wild, from worldwide opinion polls, to the extent that these tests are reliable, that the significant majority of the inhabitants of this planet favor the total elimination of nuclear weaponry, including significant majorities in most, perhaps all, the countries now possessing nuclear weapons. It is also remarkable that so many states have so far voluntarily renounced the acquisition of nuclear weapons, including quite a few states having the technical capability to acquire them. But this regime of nuclear weapon non-proliferation cannot last indefinitely. It is now in danger of crumbling. So I gave you some arguments why many may think that it is desirable to keep nuclear weapons, and some arguments on the other side of the the question. The feasibility is, in my opinion, instead rather clear, easy. Nuclear weapons have not been used in war after August 9, 1945. There probably is no person in this room who was an adult at that time. I myself was 10 years old in 1945, so I'm very old. <laughs> the total elimination of chemical weaponry as a usable military instrument has now been essentially achieved by a treaty. And note that these weapons were used much more often in more than nuclear weapons, and that the verification of the universal respect of their abolition is much more cumbersome than it shall be for nuclear weapons due to the much more extended and pervasive character of chemical rather than nuclear peaceful activities. Moreover, and then I, I repeat this. You know, as a teacher, I believe that sometimes, repetita, uh, juvent. <laughs> Moreover, all countries of the world except eight or nine have already voluntarily announced nuclear weapons by having become part, full parties to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and in addition, many of them having become full parties to nuclear weapon-free zone, which cover a large part of our planet, including the totality of the southern hemisphere. And these treaties have efficient verification regimes. Now, I very briefly mention past activities promoting nuclear disarmament and the transition to a nuclear weapon-free world. And this is, uh, I say it explicitly, a somewhat uh, parochial uh, selection. In fact, I will just mention three instances. One is a book, which was a collection of of, uh, articles, a book called Verification, Monitoring Disarmament, which was published in, 1989 in the United States in English, and in 1990 in Russian in uh, Moscow. And this was the first book on a strategically very sensitive topic. Verification was a great bone of contention throughout the Cold War, all chapters of which were co-signed by authors on opposite sides of the Iron Curtain. This, of course, became possible after Gorbachev came to power in Russia and the, the, the great change from the Soviet Union to Russia. The Second instance is uh, A Nuclear Weapon-Free Will Desirable Feasible, a book with just the same title as this lecture, again, a published monograph, and um, published in 1993. I, I had a contribution in, in that book. And, and then, as already mentioned, the Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award, and this is just a quotation, <clears throat> to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 1995 in two equal parts to Joseph Rotblat and to the Pagwash Conferences on Science and World Affairs for their efforts to diminish the part played by nuclear war arms in international politics and in the longer run to eliminate such arms. This was the official um, quotation and this was the, the uh, Nobel uh, ceremony, the man on the right is uh, Joseph Rotman. Now, the title of this section is The Transition to a Nuclear Weapon-Free World from Desirable Utopia to Political Reality. And I say that this transition occurred on one specific day. <laughs> And this specific day was January 4, 2007, when an op-ed appeared in the Wall Street Journal, by the way, a journal not particularly known for being very uh, liberal, I mean, and and, uh, rather conservative in nature. And uh, it was entitled, A World Without Nuclear Weapons. And I interpreted it as the coming out in favor of the transition to a nuclear weapon free world by a bipartisan quartet of eminent american statements. george shultz Bill Perry, Henry Kissinger, Sam Nunn. I just quote the final sentence. It says, We endorse setting the goal of a world free of nuclear weapons and working energetically on the actions required to achieve that goal, beginning with the measures outlined above. The measures are outlined in the body of this uh, paper. Of course, they don't say do it tomorrow. They say they give. But it's a, it's a, a a commitment to identify this as, as a goal and as a desirable goal. And these four people, I mean, the importance of this article is in the four people who signed it, which are, uh, Schultz was the Secretary of State from 82 to 89 of uh, Reagan, President Reagan. Perry was the Secretary of Defense from ninety-four to 97 of President Clinton. Kissinger was Secretary of State from 73 to 77 with President Nixon. And Nunn is the former chairman for very many years of the United States Senate Army Service Committee. So the committee of the Senate of the United States in charge of military affairs. Two Republicans, two Democrats. And this bipartisan op-ed is very significant because of its authors, but even more So, because of the avalanche of subsequent endorsement all over the world. For instance, in the United States, by the majority of the living Americans having served as secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, and special assistants for international security to the president. And in the rest of the world, by an impressive array of eminent personalities. Too many to be reported. I think the first were a group of uh, British. Uh, Very often, it was uh, the same pattern was kept, having four people signing, two, so to say, from the left and two from the right. I just quote here uh, the the one uh, in Italy, uh, uh, which was published in the main Italian newspaper, Corriere della Sera, and about one year later, the title was, For a World Without Nuclear Weapons, This part is in Italian, but I just read the last sentence. It says, the diffusion of a new way of thinking, of a new shared wisdom, is a fundamental step in this direction to which also Italy must contribute. It is necessary that on these themes, fundamental for the very survival of humankind, in spite of legitimate, indeed necessary, political contrapositions, a superior common interest be recognized. Just saying that they are in favor of going ahead. Again, the importance is not so much in in the words, but in the quality of the people, which uh, are indicated here. Massimo D'Alema, the former prime minister and the former minister of foreign affairs, as you see, in very recent times. I mean, the article was in 2008, (laughs) and these were um, actual uh, active politicians. Gianfranco Fini, who was a former Minister of Foreign Affairs and was then Chairman of Parliament, in fact, until uh, December 2012, Giorgio Lamalfa, former Minister of European Affairs, and Arturo Parisi, former Minister of Defense. And then I signed sort of as a representative of uh, sort of the, you know, um, general society. Again, there were two from center left at the time and two from center right. Over time, <laughs> the situation of the politician has a little bit changed, but this is, this is the, the, the way it was. Um, the most important, however, of this uh, avalanche of speeches was a speech by President uh, Obama in 5 April 2009. As president, not as former president. And uh, this part, I I don't uh, read, it's too detailed, but I just read uh, this statement. Uh, He said, so today, I I state clearly and with conviction America's commitment to seek the peace and security of a world without nuclear weapons. I am not naive. This goal will not be reached quickly, perhaps not in my lifetime. It will take patience and persistence. But now we too must ignore the voices who tell us that the world cannot change. We have to insist, yes, we can. And maybe some of you, those who are not so young, may remember that uh, yes, we can was the slogan of uh, Obama in his first run, successful run for the presidency. And I have a second quote by Obama, which is uh, three years later, in March 26, in in a university in in Korea now, 2012, and he said, now American leadership has been essential to progress in a second area, taking concrete steps towards a world without nuclear weapons. As a party to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, this is our obligation, and it's one that I take very seriously but I believe the United States has a unique responsibility to act. Indeed, we have a moral obligation. I say this as president of the only nation ever to use nuclear weapons. I say it as a commander-in-chief who knows that our nuclear codes are never far from my side. Most of all, I say it as a father who wants my two young daughters to grow up in a world where everything they know and love can't be instantly wiped out. These are strong words and uh, behind them there is evidently a very strong commitment and and conviction. All this advocacy is mainly based on four arguments. One, the end of the Cold War. Two, the the intrinsic risk of the existence of nuclear weapons. The actual use of which has been avoided so far due to the responsible caution, due to responsible caution, but also thanks to good luck. And I advise you to read the, the book by Eric Schlösser, published three or four years, four years ago. It's called Command and Control. I think it is now, they made also a film out of it, which is, I think, available for free on the internet. It's a very, very impressive book and also very easy to read, very, uh, I mean, it, 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 if you begin, you, you won't let it down until you finish it. Third argument, the risk of a breakdown of the worldwide nuclear weapon non-proliferation regime leading to the spread of nuclear weapons to more countries and more probably to their actual use with horrendous consequences. And finally, the need of a common approach to fight, namely to prevent terrorism, including, I would like to emphasize, nuclear terrorism. And I will say a few words about uh, this topic, uh, nuclear terrorism. The risk of nuclear terrorism, the possibility that a sub-state group acquire the capability to engineer a nuclear explosion. So a few specific points. The explosion of a primitive Hiroshima-type nuclear device in a major city would be a sudden catastrophe comparable, perhaps worse than any tragic event in human history. There exist terrorist groups who would cause such a disaster if they could. A primitive nuclear explosive device could be easily manufactured clandestinely in a target city by a small terrorist commando if they could get hold of a sufficient quantity of weapon-grade highly enriched uranium. And possibly also with weapon-grade plutonium, although this task is less easy. 100 kilograms of weapon-grade highly enriched uranium would be more than enough. As a consequence of the enormous accumulation of weapon-grade highly enriched uranium during the Cold War, and in spite of a significant elimination of this material during the last one, two, three decades by downblending it to low enriched uranium, then using nuclear reactors to produce electrical energy, in spite of this, there still are more than one million kilograms of highly enriched uranium around most of it in Russia, comparable quantities also in the United States, and smaller quantities, but still significantly larger than 100 kilograms in other countries. This material is, of course, not available for sale and is, in principle, well-protected, but not necessarily all of it in real practice. Although the situation has improved over the last years, or maybe decades, especially in Russia, both due to the improvement of the economic situation there and thanks to outside collaborative interventions, mainly by the United States. I consider still quite imminent the risk that a city be destroyed by a nuclear explosion engineered by a terroristic commando. Hence, I believe that more effort should be made to protect all the existing highly enriched uranium, to terminate all its civilian employments, by converting all research and naval reactors still employing highly enriched uranium to using instead the compact, low enriched uranium now available as a viable alternative, and especially to eliminate by downblending as much highly enriched uranium as possible as quickly as possible. The most important step in this direction would have been an extension, hopefully envis- envisaging a faster pace, of the highly enriched uranium deal among the United States and Russia, whose implementation has been recently completed after having eliminated 500 tons, so a very large quantity, half a million kilograms of highly enriched uranium over a period of 20 years. But this hope does not seem likely to materialize, namely the hope that this type of agreement be uh, continued or, or renovated. Positive developments on the worldwide protection of nuclear materials are now an accepted priority of the international community, as for instance, shown by these recent summit meetings convened at the highest level by the Obama administration, in Washington in 2010, in Seoul 2012, in The Hague 12 before 12, 2014, and the last one in Washington in 2016. The Obama administration has taken these task much more seriously than it was previously done. But I still believe that more could and should be done. And let me emphasize that the complete elimination of highly enriched uranium is quite compatible with the continuation of the utilization of nuclear energy, which can be done with low enriched uranium, not highly enriched uranium. If you ask, I can explain the difference. (laughs) So I now mention quickly some positive developments in the progress towards a nuclear weapon-free world. One is the New START agreement between the United States and Russia, signed in April 2010 and entered into force in February 2011. And it was a further reduction of the two nuclear arsenals of the United States and Russia, of course, with uh, proper uh, joint verification. Then there were these summits, which I already mentioned, to take care of the fissile materials uh, throughout the world. May 2010, there was a progress significant progress in transparency by the United States. It was a complete disclosure of the United States nuclear arsenal. The data was actually known, but this was the first time that they were officially made known. And especially on the new nuclear posture review, which restricted, the circumstances of possible employment of nuclear weapons stating that the fundamental role of nuclear weapons is to deter an attack performed with nuclear weapons. It did not go as far as saying that the sole role of nuclear weapons is to deter an attack performed with nuclear weapons, but certainly it was a a step forward. With respect to the previous poston review, which I, however, was classified, but it was more or less known what it was did. May 2010, then the, there was the Quinquennial NPT Review Conference, the non-proliferation treaty, envisages every five years a review conference, not to change the treaty, but to see what uh, the status of the treaty is. It ended in May 2010 with a unanimous statement. The previous one in May 2005 had ended in disarray, in my opinion, largely because of the arrogant attitude of the Bush administration in power at the time. While the non-nuclear weapon states were severely urged not to proliferate, no progress in nuclear disarmament by the nuclear weapon state was envisaged. You know, the Non-Proliferation Treaty has this distinction between uh, the countries that are recognized as nuclear weapon countries, which are five, and all the other countries of the world with uh, the commitment by the other countries not to acquire nuclear weapons, and the commitment by the five to make progress in uh, nuclear disarmament, but without any fixed uh, deadline. On the contrary, however, the quinquennial NPT review, uh, review conference of 2015 did not manage to issue an agreed final statement. So, an indication of the deterioration of the situation, the unhappiness of the non nuclear weapon parties of the non proliferation treaty with the lack of progress towards uh, the elimination of uh, nuclear weapons. I indicate a few recent hopeful developments, but as I say, possibly indicating the wishful thinking of of myself. One is the improvement of the relations between the United States and Russia, including the prospect of joint development of anti-ballistic missile capabilities. This was, however, some time ago and unfortunately, these issues are open, and the recent crisis with Ukraine and over the war in Syria has seriously damaged the relationship between the United States and Russia. A postponement by the uh, government in the United Kingdom, the new government, the conservative, liberal, present government of the decision to develop a new generation of Trident submarine, which are the British nuclear weapon carriers, but again, it seems that the United Kingdom is actually going ahead with this development. Perhaps a new resolve by China in its own interest to push North Korea to abandon their nuclear weapon program, leading to a nuclear weapon free Korean Peninsula and the formal end of the Korean conflict. But this issue is quite open. Indeed, North Korea continues to pursue its nuclear weapon development with the experimental nuclear explosion of increasing yield and also its development of long-range missiles. The Iranian agreement, which I consider an important element of the worldwide nuclear weapons non-proliferation regime, Strong commitment by several governments worldwide, including key states such as Germany and Japan, and of course of the United Nations, to progress towards a nuclear weapon-free world, but also jeopardized by the Ukrainian crisis and the nuclear weapon developments in North Korea. And then I mentioned the creation of a European leadership leadership network for multilateral nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation, the acronym is ELN, mainly composed of eminent personalities, top politicians, former highest-ranking military commanders. The original convener is Lord Desmond Brown, which was a former minister of defense uh, labor in in Great Britain, which is a group of people committed to work towards a nuclear weapon-free world. And if you are interested, you can look at uh, their website our website. Then I mentioned uh, future steps towards a nuclear weapon-free world. An essential one, in my opinion, is the reset of relations among the United States and, and Russia, from conflict to partnerships. There was a key formula which was invented by Prime Minister of Sweden many, many years ago, was common security. And of course, the involvement of China also. Further progress in nuclear disarmament, and this could be bilateral, United States-Russia agreements, uh, and, and the various issues are strategic nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, the warheads in, instead of delivery vehicles as the focus of the reductions. Issue of space, and then the issue of conventional weapons the involvement of all the nuclear weapon countries, the other nuclear weapon countries, and eventually, and I will say something more about this, a universal convention with adequate verification, perhaps on the model of the chemical weapon conventions, perhaps backed by additional nuclear weapon-free zone, for instance, in the extended Middle East. then the very notion of what is meant by a nuclear weapon-free world uh, needs perhaps to be more investigated. You can define it as what is called global zero. So no nuclear weapon exists. But then you can also define it with what I use the word, asymptotic, which is a mathematical term. And that means that you have a situation in which a very long delay, infinite time is technologically required for any reconstitution of nuclear arsenals. Because there is the argument that you cannot disinvent nuclear weapons, but you can create a situation in the whole world where it is, it would take a very long time to reconstruct nuclear arsenals and a situation where this situation verified internationally. There are possible unilateral or reciprocal steps uh, which would be uh, welcome and uh, necessary. One is re- ratification by the United States Senate of the Comprehensive Testament Treaty and hopefully subsequent entry into force of this treaty. But unfortunately, it's quite unlikely with the Senate dominated by the Republican Party. Each of these issues, we may, Discuss in the discussion, I mean, it requires a certain knowledge of what is the comprehensive test treaty. Comprehensive test treaty, incidentally, when it was open to signatures, it was signed by the United States as the first country under President Clinton, but then, Political situation changed and it has never been ratified by the United States. On the other hand, it, the, the formula is such that unless a certain number of countries ratified it, one of which is the United States, the treaty does not really enter into, does not enter into force. Another important change would be a nuclear posture change, saying that the sole role of nuclear weapons is to deter an attack with nuclear weapons in then the transition to a nuclear weapon free world becomes a logical consequence. Of course, logical consequence not necessarily then uh, really implemented as consequences. Another important uh, step would be nuclear strategy, the idea of no first use of nuclear weapons, not being used first. And finally, a very important urgent measure would be the termination of the quick alert of nuclear-arm missiles, which now envisages their launch within minutes, both in the United States and in Russia. And this is a very dangerous posture still adopted by the United States and Russia, and I have a quote here from Bill Perry, who was Secretary of Defense of the United States from '94 to '97, in which he said he wrote and said, "I believe that we avoided nuclear catastrophe as much by good luck as by good management." And this situation with. Uh, the existence of uh, missiles with nuclear weapons on on quick alert is now made even more worrisome and dangerous by the development of uh, cyber warfare, the possible interference with the command and control by cyber. A positive development is uh, the establishment of a nuclear fuel bank in Kazakhstan. On August 27, 2015, two years ago, the government of Kazakhstan signed an agreement with the International Atomic Energy Agency to establish an international low-enrich uranium fuel bank in the country. This bank, to be located in this place, in the northeast city of this place, will be owned and managed by the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, it will give members access to enriched nuclear fuel, low enriched um, um, uranium, in cases of disruption of their own supply, thus removing the need for countries to build their own enrichment facilities which pose a, a proliferation risk. If a country has a, develops the capability to enrich uranium with the purpose of acquiring low enriched uranium for uh, for their uh, um, peaceful nuclear energy. Then they also have the capability to enrich to high, uh, high to produce highly enriched uranium. It's very easy to extend. Uh, it, you just have to reprocess the same material a little bit more. And then uh, acquiring highly enriched uranium is, means acquiring capability easy capability to produce nuclear explosives. The bank has been inaugurated on August 29, 217 in Astana, so about three, four weeks, five weeks ago. I, I happened to be there because it was the last day of the pagwash Conference in, in, in Astana, so there was a ceremony. And then the other development, which uh, I consider positive, is the launching and progress of what is called the Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons Initiative. It started as an initiative to focus on the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons. And uh, I have here a description. I will read it. The use of nuclear weapons contradicts basic principles of humanitarian international law, such as the principles of proportionality and the non-targeting of civilians. Nuclear weapons are inhuman and out of sync with modern societies that have outlawed all other weapons of mass destruction, chemical and biological, as well as weapon systems such as landmines and cluster munitions. For the same reasons, the proponents of this Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons Initiative, argue that nuclear weapons must also be outlawed. 113 states have already adopted the humanitarian pledge launched by Austria after the third of these conferences in December 2014. The pledge points to the legal gap outlined above and in the foreseeable future uh, will most likely lead to multilateral negotiations for a prohibition of nuclear weapons, irrespective of the view of the nuclear weapon states. This is a paper by uh, Tom Torway in August of uh, two years ago. And this initiative has in fact uh, had a, a very uh, positive development in the sense that, well, I read here, remarkably, the Humanitarian Pledge Initiative turned out to be supported by a large number of states, although not by the eight nuclear weapon states. These is eight states which possess nuclear weapons, which are the United States, Russia, United Kingdom, France, and China, members of the non-proliferation treaty as nuclear weapons state. Then three states which are outside the non-proliferation treaty, they never signed it, which are India, Pakistan, and um, Israel. And then of course there is the case of North Korea. Nor by none, of, so the eight nuclear weapon states <coughs> and none of the NATO countries um, uh, signed, uh, went ahead with this initiative. But the initiative eventually produced the so-called Ban Treaty, which is a treaty that outlaws altogether nuclear weapons, which has been supported by a significant majority of the United Nations membership and which will enter into force after it has been signed and ratified by 50 states. And this has already happened not, it has been signed by 53 states already and, others may sign. This happened just very, very recently. And of course, in order to enter into force, it will have to be ratified by all the states. For those, and signed by other states. For those nations that are party to it, The treaty prohibits the development, testing, production, stockpiling, stationing, transfer, use, and threat of use of nuclear weapons, as well as assistance and encouragement to the prohibited activities. For nuclear-armed states joining the treaty, it provides for a time-bound framework for negotiations leading to the verified and irreversible elimination of its nuclear weapons program. And I read here a Position statement by the President of Pagwash and the Secretary General of Pagwash just, I think, a, a few days ago. The treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons uh, leading to their elimination will be open for signature on September th- 20 at the United Nations, of course, the, this September 20, so a few days ago. It it, it happened. This instrument was adopted last July by 122 states after intense negotiation. It is obviously consistent with the treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons and in fact provides a path towards nuclear disarmament and the abolition of nuclear weapons as requested by Article 6 of the non-proliferation treaty in fulfillment of a long-standing aspiration of the international community. The very first resolution of the General Assembly in 1946, when the the United Nations were established in 1946, already called for the elimination of all weapons of mass destruction, particularly nuclear weapons. The other two categories of weapons of mass destruction, biological and chemical, have already been outlawed by multilateral treaties. This time, the time to step up efforts on nuclear disarmament is now. Pagwash calls on all states to take these important steps towards the achievement of peace and security for all nations and peoples by signing the prohibition treaty and working for its ratification and early entry into force. So this is the position of Pagwash. Um, I say here, if I ask, I will tell you my own opinion on this development during the question and answer periods. And then I, a final personal note. It is known that public opinions worldwide favor, by significant majorities, the transition to a nuclear weapon free world. But there are some skeptics, especially among the so called nuclear weapon experts, especially among those with a civilian background who make a living by pontificating on these matters. From these quarters, it is often stated that uh, it is impossible to disinvent nuclear weapons but many social institutions have been disinvented over time. For instance, the habit to eat enemy prisoners, slavery, in democratic countries, restrictions by social status, uh, land property, by gender, by race, to the universal right to vote. Chemical weaponry has been uh, eliminated after this weapon had been repeatedly used during the last century. Uh, And this entails the verification of the world chemical, entails the verification of the world chemical industry, which is a more daunting task than verifying peaceful nuclear activities in a nuclear weapon free world. Even war itself has now become unthinkable in certain contexts, such as Western Europe, where the two world wars took place during the last century. So it's an example of disinventing, in fact, war in a context which is in fact the context where the two last world wars took place. As previously emphasized, nuclear weapons have been employed in war only twice, 6 and 9 August 1945, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They have never been used afterwards, even when states possessing enormous nuclear arsenals were defeated in war, by states without nuclear weapons. For instance, the United States in Vietnam and the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. You see, I repeat. This is the first time in human history that something of the kind happened. It is an indication then, in some quite significant sense, we already live in a nuclear weapon-free world. A world where nuclear weapons are de facto, if not yet, de jure, unusable. Were it not so, how to explain the fact that by becoming parties to the NPT and possibly in addition to a nuclear weapon-free zone, almost all world states have voluntarily given up the option to acquire a nuclear weapons arsenal, including several states for whom acquiring such a capability would be technologically quite easy. But this consensus is now at risk unless the nuclear weapon countries and in premise the two bigger ones, United States and Russia, make progress towards a nuclear weapon free world. This also shows that a political strategic development considered unfeasible can indeed happen. After the Cuban nuclear nuclear missile crisis that brought the world close to a nuclear catastrophe in autumn 1962, President Kennedy and other world leaders pushed strongly for the establishment of a worldwide nuclear weapon non-proliferation regime. And the non-proliferation treaty then uh, was um, concluded and it entered into force in 1970. But as emphasized by those who opposed the non-proliferation treaty also in Italy, its success was at that time quite doubtful many nuclear weapon pundits predicted that within one, two decades, 20, 30 states would have acquired nuclear weapons. Indeed, in the 1960s, many states had initiated programs aimed at developing nuclear weapons, and several of them were quite opposed to the NPT. And two of the five nuclear weapon states, as defined by the non proliferation Treaty, were also strongly opposed to the NPT, the France of De Gaulle and the China of Mao. And there were several, as I said, there several other countries were also strongly opposed to it. For instance, Argentina and Brazil, which were beginning a local nuclear weapon arms release. Yet the non-proliferation treaty turned out to be a great success. More than four decades later, all countries of the world are full parties except for three or four. India, Pakistan, and Israel, who never signed it and acquired nuclear weapons, and North Korea, who became a party but then opted out. But this large consensus is at risk. The relatively recent, quite significant surge of pronouncement by political leaders worldwide that I mentioned in favor of a transition to a nuclear weapon-free world, brings to mind the famous dictum attributed to Victor Hugo, Nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. This is why I am confident that such such a transition is in theory. Obama said in Prague that this goal perhaps will not be reached in his lifetime. I am much older than he is, yet I entertain the hope that it might perhaps be achieved in my lifetime. But perhaps only after some catastrophic nuclear explosion accidental or engineered by terrorists, or possibly even in a warlike contest. And after the widespread revulsion against nuclear weaponry caused in worldwide public opinions by such a major, major tragedy.
0: You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute